Welcome to my podcast, In the Know. My series of interviews with amazing people doing amazing things as I travel around the world of no-tell. Andy McAfee, welcome to In the Know. Thanks for being it's a pleasure uh, to be here. on the show. I guess it's a few years ago that you became one of the most famous intellectuals on the planet. Second in an alternate years. universe, in, <laughs> in a galaxy far, far away. So you must have uh, you know, acclimated to the job by now. Must have been a surprise. I mean, this book, The Second Machine Age, is an epical book in a world that is concerned with the pace of change, technology-driven, but of course, you know, through many different dimensions. I mean, you want to give me like a quick before-after? Like you used to go to Starbucks and they'd ask you how to spell your name, and now they just chase you down the street? Or what's it been like? I actually coined a phrase for this. I was talking with Adam Grant, a Wharton professor, rock star academic and researcher, and a great guy. And I asked him what it was like to become a gasp. And he said, what? And I said, you know, you wrote your book, Give and Take, and it vaulted you into gasp land. And he was looking at me with this blank stare. And I said, you're now a global alleged smart person. Whereas before, <laughs> you, you know, you were a researcher, you're a professor, you're doing whatever, but you write a book that gets some attention and you get vaulted up into this other status, you know, that I abbreviate with gasp. It's a, just a weird phenomenon. It's good weird, but it's weird. The acronym is kind of funny, but what does it mean? What does it mean? What happens? They didn't know I, you, now they know you. They only asked you about your dissertation, now they ask you about anything. They're asking you to go to elections in, in Africa. I mean, what's changed? The main thing that changed is that your phone rings more often with a variety of you know, really interesting offers and opportunities. So you start getting invited to things like Davos and the Aspen Ideas Festival, and you give a TED Talk. And I've learned that you can spend as much time as you want to, just kind of bopping around the world, going to conferences and speaking and shooting your mouth off. And that's alluring, right? Because, you know, it's always nice to be asked. It's nice to be the honored gasp in the room. And you write a book because you want to spread ideas. You're, I'm in the ideas business and a book is a vehicle to spread those ideas. And it's really, it's gratifying and it's flattering when a book get some traction and those ideas do spread and you get asked to talk about them. That's fantastic. The weird part that I noticed was that I had to start saying no a lot more often so that I could go back and keep doing work and keep trying to have more ideas and new ideas and keep the pipeline full as opposed to just running around talking about the second machine age as fun as that was. You must have had to reflect a little bit on whether to ride the wave or get back on the beach. What's the right way to divide your investments there? At some point, it was an easy decision to make because I was just curious about more things, about other things. And in particular, Eric Brynjolfsson, my co-author on The Second Machine Age and I, we weren't done trying to think carefully about some of the ideas that were in that book, and in particular, to apply them in a business context. So we're both business school guys, is what we're supposed to do. And we noticed that we kept on having this conversation with CEOs and business leaders after Second Machine Age came out, where they said... I believe the story you're telling me. Now what? Tell me how to think about my business model differently, run my company differently, purchase technology differently. You know, what do I need to do? And it's a great question. And we didn't really treat that question in Second Machine Age. So at some point, Eric and I looked at each other and said, look, there's another book down here. And that turned into kind of the business follow-up to Second Machine Age, which is a book that came out in 2017 called Machine Platform Crowd. That's meant to answer this uh Christensen's Dilemma, so to speak. He writes Innovator's Dilemma. Everyone's like, okay, what do I do about it? He spends a decade. He writes the solution. Yeah. And your answer to the second machine age's perils, 
those three words are your answer? Yeah, kind of, because the point we made in that second book was that business leaders and, and people running companies need to rethink how they allocate work between minds and machines because the machines are getting so powerful. They need to rethink having a product-centric view of the world versus a platform-centric view of the world. And they need to spend less time strengthening their core, you know, the small set of things that a company tries really hard to be good at internally, and more time interacting with reaching out to the crowd, this huge disembodied group of people that are interconnected now. So our point was not that products the core and minds are useless at all, but we think most companies are still tilting too far away from machines, platforms, and crowds. And that's kind of our answer for how the business world is changing. And even a new book, which I think can be pre-ordered now, but isn't yet shipping? It is written. It is being printed. The release date is October 8th, so it is available for pre-order now. What's the title? The title of this one is More From Less. I finally decided to write a book that didn't have the word machine in the title um, (laughs) after, after doing three of those, but it is about machines. I read this essay. Actually, I saw a headline somewhere on Twitter in 2015, and the headline of the article was The Return of Nature, colon, How Technology Liberates the Environment. And I thought, well, I got to click on that, right? And it was an essay by a guy named Jesse Ozabel, who's a professor at Rockefeller University in New York. And he was documenting that America, year by year, was using fewer natural resources, you know, fewer tons of steel, less fertilizer, less water for irrigation. And I thought, like, that can't be right. He's got to be missing something here. Because my understanding of how an economy grows is that it grows, population grows, prosperity grows. But to do that, you got to take more from the earth. You need molecules to make an economy grow. And what Osbel was saying was that's not true anymore. And I thought, I'm not sure about that. So I went and banged on his data really hard. And I actually think he was being very conservative with, with, with the phenomenon. I think it's a really broad, very deep phenomenon. And that, to me, was kind of a big deal. It meant that something about how I understood the way that prosperity happens was wrong or was out of date. And if that's true, that means a lot of the things that we worry about, you know, resource depletion and population explosions and things like that, those are actually not really important things or valid things to worry about anymore. And fundamentally, I wanted to understand how this transition happened, how we went from getting more for more, in other words, growing our economies, growing our prosperity while taking more from the earth every year, to this much better world that we're in now of getting more from less. So that turned into a book. Okay, let's, I'll, I'll take the bait. I mean, you are a Ricardian, Malthusian, dismal scientist, economist of the 19th century, evidently. <laughs> and considering the debates of the 1980s, Julian Simon, Paul Ehrlich, famous bet, will a basket of resources be more expensive or less expensive 20 years later, I think was their time horizon. The Malthusian view, the sort of skeptical or running out of time view, lost it then. And that was in the context of like, San Francisco wired era technology optimism and utopianism. And I guess this guy and you are now saying the evidence 20 years later is that it is bits, not atoms, that drive the economy? A super shorthand way to say it is that we are now substituting bits for atoms in enough different ways in enough different places that we need fewer total atoms to run our economy and grow our economy. But I do want to correct you. I was never a Malthusian. I was aware of the wager between Julian Simon and Paul Ehrlich, where Simon, where Ehrlich thought that we were just going to exhaust all of the Earth's bounty. We're going to experience massive starvations. He wrote a book in 1968 called The Population Bomb. 
where he said, look, you know, hundreds of millions of people are going to starve in the decades to come, and we can't do anything about it. We're going to exhaust the Earth's capacity to feed us. And then the Julian Simon view of the world said that's actually not how it works. We are really good at solving problems and taking advantage of opportunities. And hundreds of millions of people who need to eat, if you look at it through the view of an economist or somebody who likes markets, that is a huge market opportunity that somebody's going to fulfill. So that debate went back and forth. And like you point out, Ehrlich and Simon made this famous bet in 1990 about resource prices. Ehrlich thought they were going to go up because of scarcity. Simon said they're actually going to go down because the fact that they become scarce triggers a search for more of them around the world. We find enough more that the price eventually goes down. So that was great. And I was kind of aware of all that. The reason I wrote more from less is because it's not that prices are going down. It's that quantities are going down. We just need fewer tons of stuff, fewer molecules to increase our prosperity year after year. For me, the story of the industrial era is this two century period where we massively increased human population and human prosperity around the world. But we also massively increased our footprint on our planet. We took more resources we polluted like crazy. We killed all the passenger pigeons. We almost killed all the whales. We almost killed all the bison in North America. And it was just this extremely exploitative period in our history. And you could imagine the gloominess that came up around Earth Day because people were aware of this kind of exponential increase in our footprint on the planet and said, hey, this can't continue indefinitely. And the end is going to be ugly when it comes. Well, it didn't continue indefinitely, but the end actually was not ugly. It was amazing. We just decoupled prosperity growth, population growth from our planetary footprint, from stepping on our planet, from befouling it, from taking its resources. We're now in the rich world. The evidence is really clear for America. We are withdrawing from the world, even as we continue to become more populous and more prosperous. I think that's a pretty fantastic story. That's hugely optimistic. Uh, well, it's it not, sounds well, like it might even be true. Yeah, well, that's the interesting thing. I think the evidence supports that view. I banged on it pretty hard. I think I'm telling an accurate story. We can debate what's going to happen in the future. But when I think about these crazy technologies that we have, you probably heard about the experiment that Google ran internally, where they took some of Google DeepMind's machine learning technology and put it in charge of energy management for one of their own data centers. And as soon as they turned over heat and cooling of the data center to this piece of technology, the cooling bill dropped through the floor. It dropped by like 30 or 40 percent. The overall energy efficiency of the center went up by about 15 percent, and they didn't fry any servers, right? They didn't cause any catastrophes. That indicates to me that the improvements that are ahead of us, the efficiency gains that are ahead of us, are not small. They're not incremental. They're not marginal. Economists love to joke about how you should never pick up a $100 bill from the floor because if it existed, somebody would have already picked it up. I think there are lots of $100 bills sitting around out there in this world that we're creating very quickly. It's a colossal opportunity. What are the drivers? So digital is kind of one that everyone would obviously reach for. If you can do work with bits and a little bit of energy that used to require moving physical stuff around, I guess that's one big driver. Maybe another one is urbanization, collecting people uh, yeah, more densely yeah, in a few places. Exactly. Concentration is a really pervasive phenomenon. Urbanization is one flavor of concentration. It turns out we like to disparage city dwellers for their environmental footprint. It turns out that's exactly wrong. Living in a high rise in the city is one of the most most energy efficient, environmentally friendly ways that you can live. So that's absolutely part of it. The way I explained it in the book, in More From Less, is that there's this one-two punch of vicious capitalism and technological progress that's allowing us to tread more lightly on the world. And the way that works is that when you're engaged in a vicious battle with rivals for a market, 
you really want to keep your costs low. You know, a penny saved is a penny earned. Capitalism provides ample motive to use fewer resources, to use fewer materials. And tech progress provides the opportunity to do that. And so, for example, the aluminum walls of a Coke can or a beer can have been getting steadily thinner because when you and I buy a can of beer, we don't want the aluminum. And it turns out that beverage companies have all the incentive in the world to trim down the amount of aluminum that goes into that can so that it's as light as humanly possible. And they spend as little money on that as humanly yeah, possible. Yeah, they used to be a lot heavier. It's better engineering. So this is pure intellectual they, work that has produced a better design. They used to be about five times heavier than they are now. That's not just a little bit. And because we you know, drink so much beer and soda around the world, those savings add up. Those savings add up to hundreds, if not thousands, of 747s worth of aluminum every year. So one big core process is the incentive system ruling the world, capitalism. Another one is the innovative work that comes from technology of producing better answers to things. And in particular, yeah. digital technologies, right? Because digital technologies are, I think, the best tools we've ever invented for letting us dematerialize the world. You think about Autodesk, for example, and their design software. That can be used to do everything from designing a thinner aluminum can. You can model the stresses and make sure it can handle everything that it's supposed to handle. That same piece of software can also be used to model and design an internal combustion engine for a car. And the engines in cars today are about 40% lighter than they were a couple generations ago while being more powerful and while emitting many, many fewer pollutants. I can't tell a story where that doesn't happen unless we have these crazy powerful digital technologies and Moore's Law just giving us better tools and more digital horsepower to work with year after year. And you think it continues, I guess? You're on a curve where it keeps rolling? Yeah. I mean, think about energy management, right? And we've already decoupled energy from economic growth. And I think this is really, really profound because I've got this great, I think, great graph in the book where from 1800 to 1970, I graphed the real GDP of the United States and then overlay on that energy consumption year by year in the United States. There's almost no difference between those two lines. The correlation would be well over 0.95. Energy use went up in lockstep with economic growth. And that relationship was so tight that there was this entire body of research that, that treated them as substitutes for each other and said, essentially, look, if you tell me how much energy you use, I will tell you how advanced your society is or the size of your economy. Since a couple decades now, that relationship has fallen apart. And the United States scarcely uses more energy per year now than it did at the end of the Great Recession in 2009. That's a decade of economic growth. Our economy is a lot bigger than it was in 2009. Our energy use is almost unchanged, our annual energy use over that decade. So it's maybe 25 or 35 percent bigger. It's like three trillion more in the economy, roughly. I, yeah, I think it's on the order of 20 or 25 percent bigger, and, but much, much, much more energy efficient. Our and the driver total, on that is just is your price and quantity of, of yeah. energy. Energy costs money. Companies, companies would rather not spend that money. There's a great case study, you know, the cafe standards for cars. That's a really interesting example where in addition to market forces, 
government mandates played a role. And there were two rounds of CAFE standards put in place, one after the Arab embargo, and then one by the Obama administration that just said to car makers, look, you've got to make your fleets overall more energy efficient. And the interesting thing was when the first round of those CAFE standards came out, engines did become more energy efficient, cars became more energy efficient, but they, the horsepower went down because the designers faced a trade-off and they had to do the energy side of the trade-off. When the Obama administration put out the updated CAFE standards, the designers were able to meet those standards while simultaneously increasing horsepower. That trade-off went away my version of why that happened is you got crazy powerful digital tools to let you model and design and build much, much better engines. Okay, so two big ideas that you've worked on, I guess this last seven or eight years since the second machine age and, and now this big idea, which is coming soon. And I want to investigate a little bit, if you don't mind, now that you've sort of laid out this new family, what it's like to like look for, find, deploy, and ride along with a big idea. And we were doing that a little bit on second machine age, you know. Um, well, you got to turn down invitations to TED and you can't give a talk to every PBS interviewer and appear on every news hour episode and curtail a bit to find some time and energy to build new ideas, right? So that was one yeah. theme that I think you're laying out. And second, I guess, is your belief that you, you do need to sort of get on the trail of the next big. There are some folks, these gasps out there who find themselves with an absolutely brand name kind of book title that ends up being a multi-decade brand development project in some ways, like the Freakonomics folks. Dubner, the journalist, has taken that and sort of iterated many different flavors and variations on that. And I guess yeah. your thought was, let me go find a new package, a new core of inventions. To some extent, but I think that technologies, digital technologies and tech progress are kind of at the heart of everything that I've been doing for a long time and most of the things that I want to do as I look ahead. I think that we are living through one of these periods that happens about once a century where a new suite of technologies comes along that just changes the most fundamental things, changes how economies function, changes important things about societies, changes which country is in the lead around the world. We saw it with the steam engine. We saw it about 100 years ago with internal combustion and electricity. And I'm pretty firmly convinced that we're living through another one of those periods now. And so to be able to have a front row seat for that, to help try to understand it and explain it and be part of this thing, you know, is an incredible privilege. You're an entrepreneur. You've, you've actually helped create some of these things that are changing the world. That doesn't appear to be my skill set or my proclivity. I do this other thing, which is trying to understand and write and communicate about it. I just feel yeah. incredibly lucky. Shop selection is important in any profession, right? And it's like, at some point you're a grad student or an early tenure uh, professor somewhere and you're like, all right, what, what's, what am I going to try to build around? And I guess you saw that you felt that this wave was an irresistible one. And it, it's, I mean, it's been pretty plain, I guess, you know, there've been folks prattling on about how important this internet information, digital, the word revolution has been used a ton. As you're making this selection, I suspect it, it isn't, the hardest part isn't, let me, let me find the biggest, most insane force in the universe. There's probably like two to five that everyone would agree is kind of up there. <laughs> Yeah, But maybe it's the elbowing and the jostling. I mean, isn't it annoying the third, the fourth, the fifth, all these, there's, I mean, there's different names for your own second machine age, right? The fourth industrial revolution and the second yeah. first and whatever, like there's quite a lot of crowd around the hoop. How do you feel about judging that when you're just getting in and even when you're rolling? I think that Eric and I would not have written Second Machine Age if the area around the hoop was really crowded at that point. That book was one of the first that was written. Eric is a you know a very, very, very good, very serious economist. 
And very good, very serious economists in 2013, 2014 were not talking a lot about technology-induced changes to the labor force. That was kind of the Luddite fallacy or the lump of labor fallacy. The hmm. Second Machine Age was a book that kind of put that back on the table. And like you say, in, in the five years since, that area has gotten a lot more crowded, which is why I don't really, I don't think I want to write with Eric Second Machine Age 2.0 or something like that. Now, there's a lot of really important work that continues, and, and we're kind of contributing to that. We continue to plow ahead, but I don't want to go rewrite that book. Like you say, that some people want to do that brand building process over an entire career. I apparently like skipping around more. So at that moment in 14, 13, 12, actually, it's a super contrarian idea is what you mean. So it's not just, oh, yeah, digital is going to change the world. Actually, what you're confronting is the question of jobs and will they go to zero? And I guess you're at the tail end of a decade where people have been worrying about the productivity paradox and all that. If you want to lay that out and, and suggest your, your counterpoint, I mean, that's roughly a way to position it, right? I mean, in the 2000s, everyone's like, eh, technology just needs more workers. They don't seem to get any more efficient. And then you show up and you say, actually, you're not going to need any workers. Well, we didn't quite say that. I, I hope we didn't say that anymore <laughs> in the book, because that would be a really, really dumb and strong statement. But what we did say, the framework we used in the book was to say, look, we can all agree that tech progress grows the pie overall, grows our aggregate prosperity. And you know nobody's going to argue with that. The other bad economist joke is that tech progress is the only free lunch that we believe in. But the point that Eric and I made is that we couldn't find any law of economics that said that the distribution of that prosperity that comes from tech progress was going to be the same as it had been 10 years previously or 20 years previously, was going to be perceived as fair by people, was going to float all, lift all boats equally. That, that's just not anywhere in the economics that we know. So the point that we made is it's perfectly possible for tech progress to grow prosperity overall, but shift how that prosperity is being shared or kind of distributed throughout society. And it's not controversial anymore to talk about inequality in jobs and wages and the fact that some geographies are booming. You know, you go to SF, I live here in Cambridge, Massachusetts, these cities are on fire. And you go to some communities in the heartland of the United States, especially, and you really see them struggling. We were not the first people to say these things at all, but we did kind of put them front and center of the book. That's why we wrote the book. And I think those things are much more widely accepted now than they were in 2014. That's certainly not because we wrote this book and everybody just said, oh my God, now I understand everything. We've had five years of really intense, good thinking and research on this stuff. So you write this, uh, you're a couple of nerds from some cloistered institution, you write this book, give it a cool title. When did you get the sense that your publishers thought it was going to be insanely huge? It was kind of interesting. Eric and I had actually written a prequel to Second Machine Age that we self-published on the Kindle platform at Amazon. He and I wrote a little book, a glorified pamphlet called Race Against the Machine. We kind of made these labor force points. We self-published it because we wanted to get the ideas out there quickly. And a couple paid attention to it. There was a story in the New York Times. They're like, yeah, that was a good solid win. Yay us. And a literary agent called us up, a very good one. Uh, Raphael Segalen is his name, and he's just one of the giants in nonfiction book publishing. And he kind of cold called us and he said, okay, what you guys did there was cute, but now we're going to do the grown-up version where you have an editor and a publisher and a contract and all these fancy things. And Eric and I looked at each other. We're like, first of all, who is this guy? And Rafe said, I've worked with a lot of your colleagues. You might want to call up Bob Putnam, you know, this wonderful sociologist at Harvard who wrote Bowling Alone. And Rafe said, I'm Bob Putnam's agent. And we're like, oh my wait, God. what? So we called up Bob and we're like, hey, is this guy for real? And 
Bob's like, Wait, are you an actual idiot? You know, Rafe is the guy. He's wonderful. You should work with him. And so Eric and I then looked at each other and we said, yeah, we should actually go write a big boy book, mainly because there's still more to think about. There's more to say. There's more research to be done here. So then we signed a contract, we published it with Norton, and you never know how a book is going to do. One of the early indications we had that things were going to be interesting was very shortly after the book came out, it was discussed favorably on the websites of Mother Jones and the American Enterprise Institute on the same day. <laughs> well, all right, that's weird. Like, they don't agree on anything. But we, you know, we got very, very lucky with the, the content and the timing. So there was some situational stuff, but I, I guess you just outlined the classic advice you'd give to anyone. I suppose you, you took it yourself, which was show some leg with the ideas and see what the interest is that attracted folks that were real serious people that saw the early signs. They sort of affirmed you, shaped you, supported you, and then got even more lucky after that. When the snowball starts to roll downhill, it can keep rolling downhill. So we got good momentum with the book. You know, I went back and reread it recently. It, it holds up decently after five years. We clearly missed some things. But, and it's certainly not a timeless book, but we were talking about principles as opposed to spot instances of technology. And I think those principles resonated with some people. Yeah, I think at this point it's canonical about the present age. I mean, I teach it in my class at Columbia. Oh, thank and you. I presume I will for a while, until the third machine age turns up. <laughs> the, uh, or, the, the or the fourth industrial revolution, right? <laughs> yeah, the fifth or the sixth, yeah. We do a short selection from Schwab's thing itself. Okay, now, so now compare to the present situation, right? So, because uh, this is what I'm curious about, is sort of investigating how you find yourself a breakout idea. And I think a lot of the tea leaves and the sort of process you went through to be both contrarian, but in a big area, sort of socialize the ideas and to ride them and follow them with some, some energy. When you clicked on that link about doing more with less, that piece of environmental science or environmental economics, was the clickbait of that link a clue that there was something big there? Or is that just a thing you do all day long is sort of sniff around for potentially big things? And it's ex post, no. it feels like a critical moment. I don't think deliberately I do, but my Twitter feed is my main source of interesting things out there in the world. People post research they've come across, they post ideas, they post graphs. My Twitter feed has become invaluable to me. And that's where I saw Isabel's essay, where I saw the headline for that. I don't think I consciously click on stuff and follow tweets to find the next thing to work on. But literally, when I read that essay, I said, if this is true, this is an actual big deal. And I kind of knew at that point, if, if the evidence held up, that I was going to devote a significant chunk of my bandwidth to it because I was personally so blown away by this thought that we might have entered a categorically different relationship with the planet that we live on. And that this you know, super abusive and exploitative relationship of the industrial era might be giving way to something better. To me, that's a really big story. That's worth your own energy. So that happens to you like once a day, once a week, once no, a month, no, once a year. No, Did you thanks. keep like a? Do you have a little notepad of these where you have like at least five, or is it literally I, just? No, I, I actually years? don't. The process of writing more from less took up a lot of the past year or two years for me. So I wasn't trying to sniff around for the next thing. But one thing I've learned, I like writing books. It's the kind of research, the kind of writing, the kind of academic work that I particularly enjoy. So I've learned that I get a little nervous if I don't know the next book that I'm going to be working on. And luckily, as I was wrapping up writing more from less, this set of ideas started to just kind of swim around in my brain more and more often and not go away. And at some point I said, oh yeah, I think I know what the next thing is. So the thing that keeps me calm is I know what project I want to go tackle once more from less is out there in the world. Most workspaces today 
are vying for millennial attention by creating unlimited beer and ping pong tables. Those are all great things to do. Maybe at work, maybe not at work, but it's completely missing the point, which is that our minds are increasingly taken up by bullshit and by media that wants us rather than wants to give to us. And at work, in order to expand our creativity, to focus our minds, there are a number of hacks that we can introduce in addition to beer and ping pong, like meditation, like reading Simon Sinek, Seth Godin. But that all aside, it's really about the space that we occupy. So if we're in a cluttered space, our mind is often cluttered. That aside, having a space that is diverse as the people are, that is comfortable, that is easily movable, that can be constructed and reconstructed and deconstructed in the same amounts of time, where you're surrounded by other people that are enjoying that type of space is a pretty cool thing. If the workspace can be a definite workspace, but a good workspace, then you're in business. So this podcast is brought to you by Notel. Thanks for listening. Oh, you're uh, not prepared to talk about it yet, I guess. I'll talk about it a little bit. You know who E.O. Wilson is? Sure, yeah. Legendary biologist, the greatest ant scientist in the world. <laughs> the ant champion, yes. <laughs> the, the ant champion, but a very crazy intelligence, a very wide-ranging intelligence. And he looked around a while back, I forget exactly how long ago, and he made an observation about us human beings. He said, we have paleolithic brains, medieval institutions, and godlike technologies. And you've heard different versions of that quote, but as far as I can tell, Wilson was the first guy to put those thoughts together. And I think that's a really accurate information, really accurate observation. The question that I'm grappling with now is, if you took that seriously, what would you actually do? And in particular, we can't change our Paleolithic brains. We're kind of hardwired the way that we are. The godlike technologies, entrepreneurs and innovators like yourself are gonna to continue to develop those things. The leverage that we have is to look at these medieval institutions that we have and modify them or think differently about them to really fully embrace the fact that our brains are these glorious paleolithic messes and that our technologies are exceeding science fiction over and over again. So I think the next project that I want to work on is how would you fundamentally or deeply rethink or redesign the company if you believed that people had these weird constellation of glitches and biases and abilities going on. We just need to walk away from this notion that we are rational actors. You just can't walk around believing that anymore. And you pair that with what our technologies can actually do for us these days. We actually have technologies that can sit at a poker table with six pros playing No Limit Texas Hold'em and beat them. This is new. We haven't been here before. So if you were really going to rethink things, how would you go about doing that? I think that's a fun project. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I guess your point of control is like the really big observation that governs this, right? You've been laying out the problem between the ancient brains and these modern technologies, but the idea that there's this layer of commercial, social, right. and political institutions where we can make changes. And in particular, as you know, as an entrepreneur, you have a great deal of latitude to design the company, to design the organization that you want to. I don't think I want to rewrite the reinventing government idea or the reinventing the church idea. Those are important institutions, but that's not where I want to play. People have a great deal of latitude to reshape companies or to think about them differently from the get-go. Great, that's a real leverage point. People cohabitating with software 
in these new commercial institutions for the benefit of their... Which we're already doing, right? All of us use software all the time. We're all knowledge workers now, but I don't think we're doing it in the optimal way or in a really smart way. Another way that I'm thinking about this project is to say that we designed our companies and our organizations today based on two assumptions, that people were rational and that information was scarce. One of those assumptions isn't true anymore. The other one never was. So this core idea, so now you're back into this process. Now, so with, you know, in our conversation here, we've gone through it three times, right? This like idea selection thing. And I guess one trait you're showing off is that you're a bit more of a hedgehog than a fox. I don't know if you would agree with that characterization. You like to borrow into one big system and develop it. And in fact, all three of these, one after the other, is elaborating on a theme that you've been working on for ages. The only reason I don't love that is that foxes beat hedgehogs. So being characterized as a hedgehog is a little uncomfortable for me. <laughs> what, what I'd say is, I'm going to take it a different way. If I'm flattering myself, maybe I have a T-shaped approach to thinking about the next work that I want to do. Where, you know, a T is broad at the top and has one as a base that goes deep. To the extent I have a base that goes deep, maybe it's thinking about this world of technology, but then you apply it to the labor force with second machine age or to the earth and the environment with more from less or to the design and leadership of organizations with this thing that I'm thinking about now. So I'm, I'm going to put myself back in Fox category. I think you can certainly be a hybrid and you can move back and forth between them both. And I did have the luxury of asking Philip Tetlock on this show about his work on this topic. And, you know, he does spend quite a bit of time telling you that forecasters that are better are foxes, but that forecasters are not terribly good leaders or advocates for big ideas in the world. They're often seen as a little bit too wishy-washy. I've learned a ton from Philip's work. I, I think his work is just really, really important. Yeah, it's massive. It's massive. And so on this third iteration, though, you're like doing another selection and you don't have um, you have a filter for like novelty and importance and whether it builds on a theme of great interest for you. But you don't have a filter, which is like, will this be a bestseller? Uh, can I market test it? Should I write a quick, you know, op ed or something for, for the times and see if people react well? Or should I, I mean, how do you rank and rack and stack your your idea? No, I'm, I'm, no, you're exactly right. I'm not anywhere near systematic about it. I don't think I'm market driven in the sense of will this make me the next Malcolm Gladwell kind of a thing. And I have this great privilege that, you, you know, I can buy my groceries. I don't need to think about the next dollar all the time. The privilege that I have is I get to go pursue the ideas that I want to pursue. You know, a couple of them have hit and they've got some traction out there in the world. I hope this next one does. I hope the one after that does. But that's not the driving thing. For me, it's kind of like a book is an extended amount of work. It takes up a big chunk of your life for a big chunk of time. And I can't imagine doing it if I'm not completely jazzed about the idea at the start. If it starts to feel like a grind, I don't need to live in a grind. Why would I do that? Let's see if I'm diagnosing right. There's a saying in the chess world that the opening is mechanical, end game even more so, but it's in the middle, the mid game that the master must be a magician. And you're sort of sketching a bit the idea that once you sort of hooked on your idea and feel sufficiently motivated, that's when, you know, you, you enter this like year or year and a half of just crafting this incredibly powerful thing. You come out on the other end and it's worked really well a bunch of times in a row. And so you sort of trust your mid game, it seems to me. Maybe that's right. Like, I know the drill at this point, and I don't hate the drill. And for me, the drill is, like we've been discussing, come up with a thing, an idea that you think is worthwhile, that you think you're accurate about, you know, don't go lie to the world, and that you really want to go spend some time on. And then you enter this, like you say, the alchemy, the weird part, where you try to turn that into a book. And the process for doing that, you've heard the the great old Somerset Mom quote, that there are three rules for writing a great novel. Nobody knows what they are. 
Nobody knows what the process is for actually writing a powerful book. But for me, it's this really kind of messy, very informal process of simultaneously reading a bunch of stuff, reading the best stuff you can get your hands on, gathering up as much evidence, high-quality evidence as you can, and bugging the, the smartest, most thoughtful people that you know to give you some of their time. So when Eric and I started writing Machine Platform Crowd, one of the first things we did was hop on a plane and got to SF and you know, knock on doors and cold call people. And we had the great good luck that people out there, especially this ethos in California and in Valley of give people some time is real. And doors were opening for us because the second machine age got some traction. So, you know, for example, we went out there, we sat down with Reed Hoffman, we sat down with Mark Andres and Patrick Collison of Stripe welcomed us into the company and talked to us for a while. We went to talk to Udacity. So we just went on this learning and listening tour around Northern California. And you know, it's just a blast. It's just so much fun, especially if you like talking about ideas with people who are similarly passionate about this stuff. So one of the things I'm looking forward to about this next book that I want to write is going back out there and asking my favorite people the question, who is pushing the art of leadership, of developing culture, of building a company in a new way? Who's pushing that the hardest? And just let me go talk to them. And search for the synthesis as you yeah. stir it around. And, and, exactly. And then the synthesis is sitting by yourself in a room, trying to summon enough discipline to get the story right in your own head and then put it down on paper in a way that'll make somebody want to turn the page or read the next chapter. For an academic, quote. that's a little unusual to even say that, right? Yeah, you, you had a quote about it. A great quote. Uh, there was a kid in the media lab who was working on one of their early programming for little kids technologies, and somebody asked him what he thought of it. He goes, it's fun, but it's hard fun. And I love that quote, because for me, writing a book is hard fun. Did anyone teach you how to write books? I mean, academic training teaches you to write dissertations, but this is the teaches, hard fun. And honestly, I think it teaches you to write in a deliberately opaque, very jargony, very inside baseball. And at its worst, it teaches you to use really big words and really simple ones would do to signal how serious you are and how much you've absorbed the vocabulary and the gestalt of a field. It's not a way to get a normal human being to pay attention. It's really not what it's there for. You know, to be clear, there are times when that's exactly what you want to do. And if you're going to write a paper for a medical journal, you've got to use medical terminology. The vocabulary of economics can be very, very dense, and there can be good reasons to use that vocabulary. But if you're going to go try to write a book that ordinary human beings will pay attention to, I really think you've got to leave that behind. And some of the most fun for me has been trying to write in a style that's not insulting, it's not fluffy, it's not going to get me in trouble with you know very highly trained colleagues, but is engaging. And I think that, for example, Malcolm Gladwell and Michael Lewis are just masters at telling a story and getting you to want to read the next page. I think that's fantastic. Yeah, they're just so good. I mean, well, the word story is not often introduced in philosophy departments or economics departments. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> And stories have characters. And stories fall under genres. I think I'm trying to say things that are accurate about the world, right? To the extent this is science, I'm trying to make statements that are accurate about the world and get us to a better understanding of the world. So, you know, if I'm participating in the enterprise of science, it's in that way. But a way to do that is by enfolding those statements that are true about the world into a narrative, into a story, into an arc that people want to participate in. Even to the point of bumping up against genre? Genre is often not used with um, complimentary tone, but it is, I think, how Hollywood and a lot of high-volume fiction gets organized. And I wonder if you see stories as having patterns that repeat, 
you know, the quest and the overcoming and the challenger and the surprise and the yeah. riches and all that. Well, there's absolutely the hero's journey, right, that Joseph Campbell talked about. And I think it's fascinating. Did you know that every episode of Rick and Morty is very, very carefully mapped out to follow a particular interpretation of the hero's journey? I'm not surprised now that you say it. I mean, I think that every Hollywood scriptwriter, in fact, maps the first script readings to those certain mile markers. The Rick and Morty guys are dogmatic about it. And I didn't realize that. I just think you know, the show is so fantastic and the episodes are hilarious. And only after I had that explained to me did I realize it's very, very systematic on their part. I'm not nearly, again, that systematic. When I sit down to write a book, I'm trying to think not only about the statements that I want to make about the world, but the reader is going to go on a journey. I don't want to get into the point where they're like, oh my God, I really should read chapter 11 because I know this is an important book, but chapter 10 made me want to kill myself and I've really got to, I've got to kind of man up. I, I got to kind of summon some grit to go read chapter 11. I'd rather have them excited to go read the next thing. So with yeah. this book that's coming out this fall, I put it in a historical context. You know, I position 1970 and the very first Earth Day as this kind of cliffhanger moment where we collectively said, look, we have to stop screwing up the planet. It's just overwhelming the evidence about pollution and how bad it is. We're killing all the whales. You know, we're apparently reproducing ourselves without end, and that's going to come to a bad conclusion. So 1970 turned out to be this really wonderful year around which to frame some of these issues because kind of we, we panicked for some very, very good reasons. And that was the start of the, the real start of the environmental movement in America and other countries. It's a great turning point, I think, for the book. Yeah, that is a really brilliant idea. I mean, one last process question on uh, the craft here. Did you go try to learn it? go take like a writing class or go pal up with some, you know, call Michael Lewis and ask him how to do it? No. And again, I should. I would benefit from that. I grew up with my nose in a book. I was more of a word kid than a, a numbers kid or a math kid. And then I went off to MIT and walked away from my comparative advantage, apparently. <laughs> but I was also a professor at Harvard Business School for a decade. And Harvard teaches via the case method. And I wrote a whole lot of teaching cases when I was faculty there. And those are ideally eight to 10 10-page documents that give the student everything they need to know to either crack the case or fall on their face or whatever. So you got to learn a little bit about how to write clearly and concisely and get a story across to somebody. That was probably good training. I honestly think the best training is just sitting around and reading a lot of books yourself and trying to pattern match what keeps you engaged, what makes you want to keep doing it versus what makes you just feel like you're in a dentist chair. I want to turn for a few minutes to a set of themes that I'm sure you've answered a million times. I mean, being <laughs> a gasp and all, and what to do about this impending second machine age and the recommendations that you laid out, I guess, for companies, but perhaps for global policymakers and citizens. Now, I, I was foolishly exaggerating a view that I think some people probably did take from your book and uh, others working in the field about automation and its peril to jobs. I think far underappreciated are the new kinds of important cognitive and judgment type occupations that are going to multiply. I presume you've confronted the, the numbers from others, the optimists about jobs, those who said that farm workers went to zero, yet total employment 10x from 1900 to 2000. And for every new uh, technology, there's all these analysts and engineers and repair guys and whatever. And your argument has consistently been, nah, you guys are overestimating. 
right? It's like a, a net peril redistribution of more gains to small community and lots of folks with worse and worse jobs is the sort of theme that I took out of out of your book. Yeah, the, the best summary, I think, comes from Bob Gordon, who's a very, very good economist at Northwestern. And he just says, look, we don't have a job quantity problem. We have a job quality problem. And I think that's exactly right. We've added net jobs to the American economy without fail for, I think, 105 or 106 consecutive months, the longest streak on record. You cannot look at the evidence and think that we are anywhere near massive technological unemployment. Now, when I go out to Silicon Valley, a few of the people out there say, you know, gang, the history is no guide here, and the technologies and the companies that we're working on are going to change that situation. And they, they say, look, it's not in 50 years, it's not in 40 years, it's within a decade or two. I don't know how to interpret that, but I don't see that in the evidence yet. But like Bob says, we have a job quality problem, and our economy is not kicking out the classic American middle-class jobs that it used to, that were available to people with less education, less formal education education, that were high productivity jobs, so they were relatively high paid jobs, and they could support a middle class family, and people walked around with the assumption that they'd be okay and their kids would be doing even better. It's not that the middle class is gone, but that American middle class built on doing non-college educated routine work, that's in the rearview mirror. That's not coming back. Now, I don't think that's cause for despair or hopelessness. And Eric, my co-author, has a great way to phrase it. He said, does anybody think that there's a shortage of work that needs to get done today or tomorrow? Exactly. Or, more precisely, a shortage of work that needs to be done by human beings. You know, interpersonal jobs, social jobs, caring jobs, in-person physical jobs. The robot busboy in a restaurant is a long, long, long way away. So you just can't think that there's any shortage of work that needs to get done. Now, I think the problem is that a lot of the jobs that are being created aren't as attractive to a lot of people. And because they're more one-on-one, -on -one, they're low productivity, they tend to be lower paid jobs. And because of the way we've developed our social safety net, they tend to be more precarious. They don't have the benefits and the health care and stuff like that. So they're, they're not as good a job in a lot of ways. Okay, great. We can fix those problems with policy. That's what policy is for. We can intervene. We can top up people's incomes. We can change the way we do health care and benefits and stuff like that. And it's not an insoluble problem. It's a real challenge, but it's not an unsolvable one. And one of my big frustrations is that when you look back at previous big technological shifts, we made big shifts, important elements of our country in response. Universal, mandatory, free primary and secondary education is the best example of that. We did that about a century ago in America. What frustrates me is because of the polarization and this just gridlock that we have, that in this time of great, very rapid and very scary change, scary flux out there, our policymaking is just kind of seized up and we're just yelling at each other. If we fumble this future, shame on us. If you had it your way, more education is a good thing. Because you could characterize your comments as saying, hey, those jobs are not going to grow and waste your time educating a million CS people because these millions won't be needed. You only need some. Or should we be shifting everybody's capabilities upwards? I would actually go a different direction. Educational reform is important and we should be doing it. We are doing a good job of turning out the kinds of workers we needed 70 years ago. I think that's just silly. But if I only had a couple waves of the magic policy wand, I'm not sure education reform would, would be what I would do. I would absolutely liberalize immigration. The engine of job creation and job growth in America and everywhere is a decentralized engine, and it's accomplished by people called innovators and entrepreneurs. We built this country where a crazy percentage of the world's most tenacious and ambitious and qualified and capable people want to come here 
to build their lives and their companies and their careers. And even in the past, even before the current administration, the Kafka-esque barriers we put in their way were a joke. They were designed by our enemies. And now with this really overt hostility to immigrants and to outsiders, it's just so perverse. It's frustrating and it makes me ashamed. It's hard to disagree. I certainly agree with what you laid out. That's a remedy for inequality, income inequality, those that are the underemployed. The only way we're going to get wages up, if we don't top them up with a negative income tax or something, the only way we're going to get wages up is with faster economic growth, with labor scarcity, with things like that. Again, my number one way for achieving that higher growth is to let in all the skilled immigrants who want to come here and start things and build companies. Right. Okay. I'm not so the, the structure is not the move. The move is to just drive growth and removing the shackles on it is the capitalist's first remedy. How about like another policymaker sort of go to is that there are structural problems in the way wealth moves. You know, there's tax and regulation and concentration of assets and they just self-perpetuate. I mean, if you add more technology and more globalization to that match, then wealth continues to concentrate further. Wealth and income inequality are two of the kinds of inequality that I'm not as worried about. There are challenges that come along with them. But I am not personally bothered by billionaires. I would be more bothered if they were all on one side of the political aisle or the other. As it happens, they're not in this country, and and thank heaven for that. I would be worried about billionaires if I had a zero-sum view of an economy. So the reason billionaires became rich is that they took from the rest of us. That's not how a capitalist economy works. Uh, Jeff Bezos has not impoverished you and me. He's improved the quality of our lives. On the whole, that may be correct, and I might even share your view, but that that isn't the way that some argue the case. I mean, some argue the case that these concentrations of wealth enabled by technology and globalization are indeed the reason why, you know, the part-time, no-benefits worker is falling further behind. But you don't think it's because concentration is fueled by technology, which is kind of what these guys are saying. I think think concentration is absolutely fueled by technology. And I do think that technology is responsible for the disappearance of some of these routine jobs. So, yeah. But it doesn't correlate to the billionaires. So the the cause isn't the billionaires. It's the concentration power of technology, I guess. It's the economy-changing power of technology. Now, again, what we can do for those people who have been left behind, as you say, you know, the economy is getting more technologically sophisticated and it's globalizing. And that is absolutely leaving some communities and some people behind. That's, I think, the biggest challenge our society faces. Great. How do we address that challenge? Is taxing away the wealth or the income of the super rich going to fix that challenge? I don't think so. I don't see that. Now, we need to have money to pay for the things that we want to do. Absolutely. And so we should think broadly about how we want to change the tax that we, taxing that we do and broaden the tax base. Yeah, absolutely do that. Right, but, but tax but as a kind not, of tail-end remedy for a structural imbalance is not going to yeah, solve Yeah, but we're, but we're not going to bring back the middle class by eliminating rich people. That's, I think that's just logically wrong. And, and stoking got, up resentment against rich people, I think, is counterproductive. I, just, I think it's not addressing the real things that are going on. Yeah, it's a distraction, isn't it? Well, I mean, so have you got a a magic trick in this new book that people should be pre-ordering as we speak? That um, Uh, I mean, it sounds magical, doesn't it, that you could do more with less? And perhaps it's a thing that could help us rejigger this huge imbalance. Folks who have less can do more. Unfortunately, I, I think something else is likely to happen, which is what we were talking about earlier. The concentration of the economy, I think, is going to continue and it's going to accelerate. It's going to become more concentrated. And I mean that both in terms of personal wealth and income, 
If you look at the level of the company, we see in industry after industry, we see more and more industries where there are a few superstar companies and a bunch of zombies, a bunch of dead man walking companies. You know, you, if you look at retail, you can think of Amazon as on one end and then JCPenney and Sears on the other. So industries are getting more concentrated. The geography of the economy is getting more concentrated. There's more and more economic output coming from a smaller and smaller number of counties, for example. We got superstar cities and then large parts of the country that are getting left behind. One thing I learned for this book is that since the early 80s, we have given an amount of farmland in America back to nature equal in size to the state of Washington. Agricultural wow. output is going up in America. We're an agricultural juggernaut, but we do it on a smaller and smaller footprint of land. That's great news for the planet, right? Give that land back to nature. Unfortunately, that Washington-sized piece of land is owned by people who were often trying to make a living off it. And now that's not even marginal land anymore. So the economy is concentrating, which is great in some ways, but the people who were trying to make their living on the margins are now outside those margins. And dealing with that, I think, is a very, very tough challenge. The reason I'm concerned about it, the economics playbook for, for causing concentration to reverse and kind of re-diffusing the economy, it's not a very thick, but we don't know how to do that. Maybe we should run the opposite play. If we assume that the trends you're describing have only just begun, and they'll be 10 times more serious in 25 years, perhaps the, the goal is to just prepare for that, get there faster. But I hear you, and I think that's a, a really compelling idea, except that there are pretty clearly two kinds of people, people from anywhere and people from somewhere. My guess is that you and I are both people from anywhere. I doubt that you've stayed in your hometown for your whole life and your whole career. You know, I moved to where I thought the opportunities were and what I wanted to do. But there are a lot of people who feel rooted to their communities, their history, their ancestry, and they don't want to go be part of the mobile workforce. And I think it's both callous and really ineffective to say to them, well, you can always move to San Francisco. I, I just don't think that works. And I don't know what the actual solution is for people who are living in parts of the economy, parts of the ge geography, parts of the economy, that are getting left behind by these just tectonic forces that you and I keep talking about of globalization and tech progress. Our playbook is not very thick for that. We do opportunity zones. We do tax breaks. I wish we did immigrant visas that were tied to different communities or, or different locations. We're not doing that. Mm -hmm. We should run that experiment. But the things that we have tried, the track record is not great, and the economy continues to concentrate. Well, it sounds like one of the great problems of the age, and I'm glad that you're working on it. Hopefully this next project on institutions is going to give us something to work with after all these gloomy forecasts from you, Andy. <laughs> yeah, but, but hold on. I, 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 don't, I try not to be gloomy. This book that I've got coming out this fall is actually I find a deeply hopeful, a deeply optimistic book. The biggest thing that I'm worried about is on the environment front is global warming, obviously. On the human front, it's these communities and people who are, that are getting left behind as the economy changes very quickly. That is a tough problem. We should be focusing on that. Oh, it's so true. I mean, to call you gloomy is, is unfair. Maybe they call <laughs> Ricardo and Malthus dismal scientists, but you are the prophet of the age of abundance. Uh, apparently an age of abundance that, that can be had with fewer pollutants and less waste and less energy and less everything else. It's very exciting. And so yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, fantastic. This has, been, this has been a real pleasure. Thank you for guiding this conversation in productive ways. I appreciate it. Hey, listeners. Thanks for subscribing. Or thanks for just tuning in. A special request from me on this podcast that you are growing to love. Write a review. 
please. A five-star review spreads the word, and people will follow. Cheers, thank you, and stay tuned for the next 30 episodes. I'm so excited we've just passed a big milestone. It didn't take long, and all of a sudden we're up at 40 episodes of people telling us how to spread great ideas.